For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this month, California joined a handful of states where terminally ill patients can get prescription medicine to hasten their deaths. That option is not available in Arizona, where medical aid in dying remains illegal. Vanessa Barchfield introduces us to a Scottsdale family who recently lost a loved one to a rare disease. Her dying wish was that her husband and daughters work to change the law and give the terminally ill in Arizona the legal option to face death on their own terms. Lance Goldberg met his future wife, Terry, when they were 14 years old. It was during the summer, and mutual friends got together for a day of horseback riding. They became friends and a few months later went out on their first date. It didn't go well. And then um, the week I turned 17, and I had a function to go to, and um, there was a cancellation on the young lady's part, so I asked Terry if she would go. And so that was our first date uh, that led to a lifetime. They were voted most likely to get married in their yearbook. That's their younger daughter, Lauren. My name is Lauren Kane. The way my dad tells it is he was like this math nerd and she was the cheerleader. And I don't know if that's really how it went because that's not what she says, but um, they were a unit. They had always, they were kids together. Those kids grew into young adults and got married in 1969. They had two daughters. We didn't figure out the other chromosome. Lance joined his family's business and Terry became a kindergarten teacher. And so growing up, I had the best teacher as my mom. Um, She loved, loved working with kids. The story isn't about how Terry lived though. We had a long life together. We just thought it would be a lot longer together. It's about how she died. When they turned 60, Terry and Lance started spending time in Phoenix as snowbirds. It was around that time that they started seeing early signs that something was wrong. Even today, Lance doesn't really like to talk about it. We'll maintain her dignity, but it was not pleasant. There were tests and surgeries and treatments, and eventually Terry was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. My dad and I had a feeling that we had, that the Parkinson's diagnosis wasn't correct pretty much from the get-go. Her health was declining so rapidly, they began to suspect multiple system atrophy, or MSA. Um, Which is uh, also a neurodegenerative disease, but very, very rare. Terry Goldberg was not gonna get better. It took her a little bit to come to terms with it. She was hoping, you know, it was wrong. Um, And then it was just a really fast Parkinson's that would somehow plateau. But when she realized um, what this was and started to want to become educated about what the months were going to be like ahead and how she would die, she wanted to know everything. Lauren says with MSA, there's only one certainty. Every day is going to be worse than the one before. So that anxiety, and especially when you start to research what your last days are going to be like. Most MSA patients die in their sleep. That's a very comforting thought. 
and was until we learned that the reason is one of the first things um, that goes is the swallowing instinct. That's probably not the right word. Also, at some point, the body just doesn't remember to breathe. And choking and those types of things, they struck terror in, in her. Lance and Lauren say Terry didn't want to suffocate in her sleep. She didn't want to choke. So as a family, the Goldbergs started to research options for a more peaceful end. They didn't live in Oregon, though, or Montana, or the other states where doctors can assist patients in dying. They considered flying to Switzerland, where it's legal. But as it got closer and just the complexities of putting Terry on an airplane and making that trip and leaving leaving this home. Switzerland was not going to happen. They had to work with the two options available in Arizona, which are palliative sedation, which is basically when patients are put into a coma, or VSED, which stands for Voluntary Stopping of Eating and Drinking. They read articles and watched videos about both options. Lance says on YouTube, VSED did not look like a peaceful process. Terry decided she would go for palliative sedation. They say she was able to decide for herself because... The good news, bad news of this disease is it does not affect one's mind or ability to think and use logic. So she was quite sharp all through this. During her illness, Terry became an advocate for people in her position, calling for legislation that would make it easier for patients like her to get medical aid in dying. Here's Lance reading from a statement she wrote about her illness. A few months ago, I still had good days. Now there are only good moments. And fewer and fewer of them each day. I am terrified of what will inevitably come. Increased difficulty swallowing. That inevitability was getting closer. Terry's pain was out of control. The morphine getting less and less effective. I want to be able to exit peacefully, with dignity, on my own terms. Lance says one day the hospice nurse came to their home and Terry made it clear she was ready for palliative sedation. The nurse responded, though, that the conditions hadn't yet been met. Terry would have to go on. She didn't say anything to any of us. She seemed to just accept what the RN said. And um, from that day forward, she had a few sips of water and might have put something in her mouth. But I believe she made the decision then. Without saying anything, Terry had started the Vised process. But she had one more thing to do. A few days before she died, she filmed a video with this message. I would never, ever leave this earth unless I was in a situation like I am that is taking me only one direction and such a frustrating, painful, continuous ordeal. I would, that, that is a, a deal breaker for me. We always felt that that was Terry's decision to make. She knew that we didn't want this to end, but she also knew that we didn't want her to suffer. 
So she knew that we supported her. And really by the time she made that decision, my thought was, how in the world did she endure this for so long? You talk about in sickness and in health. I certainly have a lot greater of understanding of what that can mean from watching what my dad did and what I know my mom would have done for my dad. It's what you do when you love somebody. They just got a really raw deal. Terry Goldberg died in her home, surrounded by her family, on February 19, 2015. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Bargefield. Lance Goldberg and Lauren Kane will be speaking on Saturday, June 25th, at a panel discussion organized by Compassion and Choices Arizona. The forum begins at 2 p.m. in the Ward 6 office at 3202 East 1st Street. Mental health reporter Gisela Tellis spoke with attorney Ronald Zack, who specializes in end-of-life legal issues, and with Mary Frances O'Connor, a University of Arizona psychologist who studies grief to explore the legal and emotional ramifications of the Right to Die movement. She starts by asking why the movement is so controversial. There is a lot of, of disagreement. I think that the, the, the concept of right to die, well, everybody has a right to die. Everybody's going to die. And so I think that's really a misnomer. And I think what we're looking at in laws like California's, like Oregon's and Washington's, is the right to have somebody help us kill ourselves. It's, it's the assisted suicide laws. And that's, to many people, a very difficult area to deal with when, when you consider that disability groups are concerned about an obligation to die. Does the, the right to be assisted um, ever turn into an obligation? Are people doing this because they're a perceived burden, because they're too expensive? So I think that all leads to controversy. And Mary Frances, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think from a a very different perspective, from a very personal perspective, as a family member um, who is facing someone's terminal illness, um, I think there's this difficulty no matter what happens. So on the one hand, you want to provide as much and the best possible care for this person as you can. And on the other hand, you absolutely want it to go the way they want it to go. You want to respect their um, wishes and and how they envision a good death. And so whichever way things turn out, I think that there is this tremendous sense of responsibility among family members. And by the very nature of, of the end being a death, in many ways that feels like a failure to people, right? I mean, our whole society is built around keeping people alive. And so uh, I think at least from the perspective of family members, that may be part of why this is such a difficult issue. Now, your, your research has focused on grief and loss. And how does grief differ if you know your loved one is choosing to die? Studies have looked at if a family member has died because of a physician-assisted suicide, 
What is the outcome like for family members? So in the year following the death of someone by an assisted suicide, what, how does the family adjust? And what we see, at least from the studies that have been done, the few studies that have been done, it suggests that the death of a family member through physician-assisted suicide versus a natural death does not actually change the outcomes in terms of family members' depression or prolonged grief, um, that those are not uh, different. There is not more depression or, or, or more trauma when it's a physician-assisted suicide. And in fact, when there's a physician-assisted suicide, family members often say they feel more clear that their wish, family's members' wishes were respected. What about the process that the person making the decision goes through? What do we know about that? This one's a little harder for me. Uh, we have less research in this area. We know that, at least in the United States, many people begin the process to have a physician-assisted suicide, but don't actually end up using that option in the end. You know, we often think, well, if this happens, if it gets this bad, I'm not going to want to go on. But when you get there, your expectations change, and you realize, you know, I can't get out of bed, I can't uh, help around the house anymore, but I'm still valued here and I want to go on. So what goes through people's minds, I think, varies across time. Many have raised concerns that there can be this slippery slope, that you can, you can have family members influencing or coercing the person who's making this decision, or that you could ultimately one day see euthanasia approved for non-terminal illnesses or psychological distress. Can we safeguard against something like that? From the perspective of many of us who have looked at, at the laws, that at least in the, the four states where there's good statutes to look at, th the safeguards really aren't there. The, usually the threshold for uh, making the request is pretty low. And in fact, in most of these jurisdictions, the witnesses, you know, at least one of, well, one of the witnesses can generally be somebody who's going to benefit from the death, from an heir or somebody who's going to make money. Usually two witnesses are required when the patient requests assisted suicide. Um, there's been evidence in every one of the jurisdictions that I've looked at of, of physician shopping. You need two physicians, but you can shop around for the physician who's going to give you the answer that you want. And we all know that you can usually find a doctor who's going to give you the answer that you want. Anything can be exploited. Anything can be mishandled. And we're dealing with our most vulnerable people. And unfortunately, I think people don't have a good sense in this country often of what a good death looks like, what a good natural death looks like. And so we think receiving that diagnosis um, brings up a lot of images and assumptions that may or may not be true. I think that a lot more emphasis about good palliative care, about good hospice care, about how do you have a conversation with family members of what the wishes are, and, and that may allow people to explain, well, I'm worried about autonomy and finding a variety of ways to handle issues around autonomy toward the end of life. There needs to be public recognition and, and emphasis in, in that area as well. I agree with that.
the the other thing that I'll that I'll just mention is there is also a sense perhaps that if you have the right to do this if you have the right to say that's enough I don't want to do this anymore in a funny sort of way it may give you a piece of control at a time when you feel you have very little control even if you never use it it's just a different way to think about the conversation. I think the conversation needs to be broader than should this or should this not be legal, but rather what are all the issues surrounding this? How can we move forward to make terminally ill people as psychologically healthy as possible and feel that they are having a meaningful existence? And how can we move fa- help families to move forward to feel they're doing the right things by their loved one? that is bigger than a yes or no answer. Well, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. Sunday, June 26th, will be the 19th annual International Day of Support for Victims of Torture, as designated by the United Nations. Tucson is home to an estimated 11,000 refugees from as many as 50 countries. Since 1995, one small grassroots organization has been providing a safe community space for refugees of all ages from all nations. Joining me to tell us more about the Owl and Panther Club are members Leonardo Monterana from Chile, and Abby Hongwei from Zimbabwe. Owl and Panther serves survivors of torture, trauma, and traumatic dislocation. And we facilitate healing through expressive arts, service learning, and um, outdoor activities. I'm now the administrative manager of Owl and Panther. So you got very involved with the group. Yes, yes. <laughs> my, uh, my role has evolved over the years. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that I feel like I bring to All in Panther is sharing with the participants that I was there before. I was exactly where they are as uh, new participants. It takes different time for everybody to, to get used to the group, to feel like you can trust the group enough to express yourself freely. It, it takes time. What are some special things that you have learned to keep in mind when dealing with people who are survivors of torture or who have escaped violence in their homelands? I think the most important thing to remember is to let them initiate. You know, it's okay to talk about their past experiences, but as all in Panther, it's always been our philosophy that we don't initiate those types of conversations. It's up to the participant whenever they're ready to talk about it and if they feel like that's the best platform for them at the time you know you gotta have patience you know like I said earlier everybody is different they respond differently so you know you can't put a clock on anything you, you have to be patient I would imagine that some people would have triggers things they may not even be aware of, certain noises or, or things happening around them that can make them uncomfortable. In your role as a group leader in, with Alan Panther, 
Have you found yourself sometimes having to offer support or counseling to someone who may be having an anxiety attack? Yeah, um, I, I've definitely come across those, those types of situations. And in any situation like that, what we've found to work is uh, just reassuring the person, reminding them that they're safe, reminding them that they're in a safe place. And, you know, touch is good if, if you know them well enough, just to remind them that, hey, you know, there's people around you, you're safe. And we have training with IRC. They've been very valuable in, in kind of helping to reinforce that the idea of, of just reminding people that they're safe. Leonardo, I'd like to ask you, can you briefly tell us about your background in Chile before you came to the States? I was uh, studying university in 1970, 71, when there was a military coup. Before the uh, military coup, we have a people's government. It was a people's government. government before, so it was socialized exactly. and peaceful. Were you protesting the fascist government? Yeah, I did. And... It was a pretty, um, see what I was thinking, um, horror, horror. Horror in terms of? Of uh, the type of persecution. Um, so they were, they were employing violence to quell the protests? Right. They didn't target leaders. They target people, population. So we were in the uh, limbo for a, for a while. In fact, I lost a couple of friends that they were a student. People who, for some reason, during the arrest, something happened, and they execute the person. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a, a lot of repression in that way, and they go back and forth killing people. Chile is a long country. And that is Santiago, how I visualize it, yes. Santiago is the center, Palati happened in the center, you know, uh, everything practically in the, in the capital. But they went to the train south, and open a concentration camps for political prisoners. In the train north, oh, another one for political prisoners, the troops that came to my town, yes. they, weren't, they weren't from the area, weren't from someplace else. So when they shoot, they didn't know people. So that, that was a, a, a huge plan there. We have to really uh, begin an, an underground clandestine activities. The way you sort of uh, deal with the fear is to join. I mean, or sit in my house, you know, my mom said, please don't do anything. And, and I said, but I am I'm afraid I had to do something. <laughs> so I deal by, by joining the movement when I had my chances. How long were you involved with the movement before you were in prison? Maybe nine months. Can you tell us something about how you became a prisoner? Well, when you are clandestine, you operate in uh, small cells. Mm-hmm. Once the leader of the cell got arrested, usually, very unfortunately, they destroy the individual until uh, he talk. Mm-hmm. And, and that happened, and, and we got arrested, and we were tortured for what we were doing. Then I was sent to Santiago to a concentration camp in Santiago called Tres Alamos, and I spent there another seven months. Tell us something about what the conditions were like. For me, it was uh, a renaissance of my uh, belief because uh, people were enduring and the movement is still alive despite of, despite of the huge effort 
amazing number of places they were torturing people. And they ended up there, and, 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 they, and we hear, you know, clandestine notes came from outside, say, hanging in there, we are hanging outside. Mm-hmm. So that gave give us a lot of hope. How did your liberation come about? How was it that you were able How to leave happened? the camp? Yeah. I recall somehow, and I don't know for sure, that uh, Jimmy Carter was on government, and he had the so-called human rights policy. And they were putting pressure to uh, a Pinochet to release people. Tell me how you think that your experience being imprisoned and tortured, how did that change you as a man? They said, you talked, or the train is coming in five minutes, you die there, or I put a bullet in your head. It's so much the uh, pain, and it's not physical, it's in the spirit. It put you in a place where you would have welcomed death as an escape. I have a a moment when the guy said that, I have a moment that I feel like uh, my spirit was living. So that is a a sensation that uh, helped me to not be afraid to be die there anywhere. I have heard that they have made the place where you experienced your torture into a memorial. Exactly. Does this make you proud of your country? Yeah. Well, not as, you know, everybody has expectations. We all have expectations. You all have expectations. That, so, that so could, they couldn't do the more. You know, they sure. can do more. Yeah. yeah. Because, for instance, my brother said, our next... Uh, a step is to uh, file a complaint of those who torture us. And those guys are still there and still alive. So, But they're not in prison? They're not in prison. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the lawyer who, um, who said, I, I will do a class action better than just individual. So he's collecting people who have been tortured and see what happened. I don't know. Uh, my idea is that the people had to go to jail, those guys, because uh, they commit criminal act. But that's it. There was a criminal act what happened inside the torture center. Our listeners can't see you, Leonardo. They can't see your smiles, <laughs> how, how quick you are to have humor, uh-huh. even when talking about this very serious situation. Mm-hmm. When you just said that, I think they should go to prison because they committed a criminal act. There's no revenge in your voice. It is inspirational to me that you aren't directing it at those men. To you, they're criminals. They deserve to be punished. Exactly. We are not claiming for money or government uh, compensation. No. And and by our memorial site, it will be sort of like the witness of this type of justice happening. Abby, you've been sitting here with me, listening to Leonardo's story. I don't know how much you've talked before. I don't know how well you know each other. We're no. good friends. We've been <laughs> friends for a while. But do you have anything that you'd like to say about what he's told us? There's so many emotions. You know, every time I, I listen to uh, Leonardo's story and, and hear about things that are currently happening, there's so many emotions. But... Um, just knowing that there's a country out there accounting for what was done in the name of, be it national security or whatever it was at the time, gives me hope that, you know, maybe this will happen in other countries as well. It needs to happen. There's still, you know, 122 countries right now that still sanction torture in one way or another. Including our own. Yes, 
And, and that's the latest uh, Amnesty International report number. And my hope is that in my generation, we will do away with torture. And I think it starts with, with what Chile is doing, accounting for what was done. We, we can't be complacent and just be like, it's been happening for a long time, so you know it's just a way of life. It's not. Uh, we need to be reminded constantly that it's still happening, and we need to foster compassion. You know, not only for the survivors who have been through this, but for people who are facing it right now and for people who will face it tomorrow until this ends. My guests were Leonardo Maturana and Abby Hungway. Both are proud members of the Owl and Panther Club in Tucson. The International Day in Support of Victims of Torture is Sunday, June 26th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight.